0: everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Litovsky,
1: And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg.
0: And today we're getting in the festive spirit.
1: It's been a little while since our last episode, not entirely by design. We were going to do one in November for your birthday, mm-hmm. but we just decided to relax instead. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you know, we can always uh, continue to celebrate my birthday for several months. I'm totally unopposed to that.
1: But we wanted to get at least one more in this year. This has actually been a very sparse year for the show. I think we've only done a few episodes overall through all of 2023. We appreciate the people that are still listening and that are interested in hearing us chat about stuff. And maybe in 2024, we'll try to churn out a few more than we did this time. We
0: got quite a list of films that we would really like to cover. In fact, there's some we watched with the intent of covering. And then, you know, Life (laughs) and we can record and we might watch those again and record again because we have quite a list of things we'd love to talk about so i think we have a game plan for 2024
1: it's also worth noting that despite what the rhetoric would have you believe we are still in a pandemic yes and every day you see people post on social media variations of are you just existing today that's a lot so that's fine
0: well done yeah
1: So the fact that we're just making it one day after the other and just existing is pretty damn good. And uh, once in a while, we do an episode of the podcast also.
0: (laughs) But suffice to say, we are watching a lot of movies whilst existing. So, I mean... Oh, yeah. We got plenty to talk about with you.
1: Which, by the way, gives me a chance. I'll just throw in a couple of plugs. Why not? Let's do it.
0: It's our show. Plug Uh, away.
1: (laughs) One of the things that came out of the pandemic just weirdly and out of nowhere and has now become one of my favorite things as I do a comic strip twice a week called Pickles and Bean and picklesandbean.com is where you can find them we're wrapping up the second year i say we like the pickles and bean staff it's me and and my laptop and me so, sometimes
0: with ideas and yeah that's
1: right and natalie has actually written some of it as well mm-hmm. so uh pickles and bean is wrapping up the second year and i already have ideas for heading into 2024 so It is just entirely a a labor of love kind of thing. I don't know where it came from. But in many ways, it's kind of like an homage to Peanuts and the strips that I grew up with. I never thought I'd be a comic strip creator, but it just happened.
0: I mean, it's a happy place. It's it's a nice place to visit.
1: And the other thing I would plug is, in, in aid of what we do on the show, and like you said about movies, I've tried to make my mission over the last year or so watching a wide variety of things that like, I never saw that I should have seen from a certain era, or things I'd like to see, and I've been trying to chronicle a lot of that on Letterboxd, which I only just joined like a year ago or mm-hmm. so, and you can find reviews from me all the time, some very short, some very long. I've ported over a lot of old articles that I wrote for other venues, so for instance, these very long reviews I did of the Halloween franchise way back when now sit on Letterboxd because i don't have any other home for them that works as well so uh find me just under my regular name at letterbox.com and and follow me and i'll follow you if it looks like you watch the same movies if it looks like you don't i might not follow back because i don't tend to follow people back who watch only like you know soviet block films from 1940 i don't know you know if this
0: exclusively like hallmark mystery
1: movies (laughs) definitely not that yeah (laughs) If it's all cozy murder mysteries, maybe not so much. Although they have a place and we are watching Murder, She Wrote from the beginning. We
0: are, but that's, you know, another conversation for another day. That's
1: for our other podcast, Murder, <laughs> She Podcasted. <laughs> which, which
0: probably already exists.
1: Where we're going to talk about every episode. Is, we're going
0: on 800 tangents here, but I have discovered that Murder, She Blanked mm-hmm. exists in like every venue.
1: In this episode, Andrew Stevens and Albert Salmi. What the hell? <laughs> so um look i I'm sorry, but I really know as little about this as you do, and I have nothing to say if you'll excuse me so yeah' we're doing that, but anyway, for Christmas, we decided to uh in the past, we do ho- like Halloween and other holiday episodes, we try to do a bunch of movies, wanted to have an episode up, we realized our limitations and uh and I'd do all the post production anyway, and then we decided, well, let's just pick one movie and talk about it, and the thing that was just so weird was. Night of the Comet has long been a nice, comfortable go to for us for a long time. It's just a movie we like to rewatch and certainly every year around this time. And yet, strangely, we hadn't yet covered it on either version of our show, Mm -hmm. except when we were still doing Doctor of the Dead and we did that big episode of 100 zombie movies. Right. That was in there. And I did not go back to listen to what we said then, but we would only have said something for like five, seven minutes, you know? So
0: Uh, you say five, seven minutes. I'm thinking two, three sentences because we covered a hundred movies in
1: that episode. I haven't listened to that one in a long time. That was quite a whirlwind idea.
0: And this is one of, I think, one of the first movies, like zombie movies that you showed me when we first started dating that... I hadn't seen before. You hadn't seen this before? I hadn't seen this until you showed it to me for the first time. I don't remember that. It's hard for you okay. to remember that cuz now we watch it all the time and so it's very familiar to both of us, but okay. it's more recently familiar. I really didn't
1: remember that that was new to you when we mm-hmm. first started seeing it. Okay. But you'd heard of it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. I just never seen it.
1: Okay. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth?
0: We're talking ghosts! Who would you see? There's nobody.
1: I mean, there's nobody. Ah!
0: What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The
1: stars
0: are up we <laughs> Well, get ready to find out because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but. <laughs>
1: You will need ID.
0: Let's be real. It's the Night of the Comet.
1: For me, Night of the Comet has kind of like a special place as well because for those of you that have been around when I've been doing stuff for many years, uh, back when I did that first book on zombie films with Andy Hirschberger, Zombie Mania, back in 2006, 2007, one of the 80 movies we devoted a chapter to is Night of the Comet. And given the very limited realm of uh source material that strangely was there in the early 2000s it doesn't seem like such a wild west to early 2000s but there were many movies that you still couldn't get on dvd or uh in any form streaming and didn't exist streaming didn't exist and and even with the internet which of course sure we had the internet but there was like precious little information about a lot of movies there's one movie in particular we did the child which we talk about one day down the road that was the most obscure one, one of the most obscure ones we picked. And uh and I found the guy who wrote it and and was able to get information because there was literally nothing on the internet. Now you look it up, you find stuff. Another one is The Dead One by um Barry Mahon from 1961, which now like I think it's Severn or one of those places. They put out this big prestige release <laughs> of the dead one, and it's like we found it on like a something weird like video twofer. It was crazy. So Night of the Comet, oddly, it was a, you know, mid-level B-movie, but like from a studio and, you know, and it came out in theaters and people knew it and it was covered by like Starlog and I think, I guess, Van Gogh or that kind of, I can't remember the timing of all this, but there wasn't as much information. And so we didn't do it for every movie we did, but for some of them that we felt we just didn't have enough to rely on our own expertise we tried to contact people. It wasn't an interview book, but we tried to occasionally. And I don't know how I did it, but I found Tom Eberhardt, who was the writer-director. And he was so happy to talk about it. And one of the really wonderful people we found, and one of the nicest things about it was that he also sent me a th- paper too. Because even in the 2000s, there was still this weird crossover. We still weren't scanning and like, Emailing everything. He sent me a paper packet of never before published uh, black and white stills taken on the set, like alternate publicity photos, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. makeup shots, close ups of the little uh, of the boy who comes to Hector's door and uh We'll get to all the plot points later for these yeah. images. And uh if you know the movie, you already know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> by the way, full spoilers. That's the way our show works. And so we used all the as many of those photos as we could justify. Right. In Zombie Mania, and then footnote to that: as many many years later, I'm sitting on Twitter and occasionally interacting with Kelly Maroney, and she had never seen any of them before. So I told her, I'll, I'll upload them to you. And I sent them, I guess I gave her to her in a Dropbox or something. Yeah. I said, like, here's all your pictures. And she was like, <laughs> I've never saw this one before. It was like alternates of her with the Uzi mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, so it's been, it's been like an interesting sort of tangential relationship uh, with the movie. And it's just one of the truly fun, tongue in cheek, very nicely made homages to 50 sci-fi. but one that is firmly entrenched in the 80s.
0: Oh, very much so. So I guess we should jump in and maybe give everyone a brief plot summary, but you've already seen it. Go watch it if you haven't. It's currently streaming on Shudder, and if you don't have Shudder, you can watch it for free on Tubi with commercials. So watch it on one of those and then come back. And I think the interesting thing about the film sort of in what you're saying of it being an homage to sci-fi is that it really does feel like a sci-fi premise that then becomes a horror movie
1: well it's like he he like takes that first shot across the bow at the very beginning yeah it opens with a slightly overplayed narration that is the type of narration that would open every 50s sci-fi movie about you know the rockets are being built and we're going into space I mean, and he, and they do that with this deliberate idea of we're paying homage to that weird time of 50s drive-in B sci-fi mm-hmm. And even to the point of like, you know, the kind of movie you're getting by the fact that right in the narration, in the beginning he says something, the earth's going to get an extra Christmas present this year. And it's like, oh, so we're joking about this. It's like a sardonic humor to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, right from the beginning, it's like, this is an homage. But then it winds up being an homage to itself, because as we've talked about a lot, It has struck me over the years rewatching it. It's so weird. It's a 1984 movie that seems thoroughly aware that it's in a time that is like instantly become kitsch. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the most 80s movie you've ever seen that seems to know it's an 80s movie in the moment that it's happening.
0: It is unbelievable how 80s this movie is. Like if someone were to ask you. What were the 80s like? I feel like you could show them this film and they'd really get a good understanding of it because it has all kinds of neon, very like bright, slightly not quite coordinated outfits. It's like that eighties aesthetic of like very bright colors and you put them together but they don't quite match and you're okay with it.
1: The hot pink E C comics color palette thing yeah, going on. But yeah. it also
0: has like peppy pop music. A lot and- of synth lot of synth, and I love a good synth. That's mm-hmm. that's my happy place. It's
1: fantastic soundtrack.
0: But it also has, like, snappy one-liners and silly sides, and also drama and also, like, a lot of, sort of, tension created by, like, urgent piano music.
1: And I've talked about this, I'm sure, multiple times before, but... You say, like, you know, how to encapsulate the 80s for someone who didn't experience them or a up in them. I totally agree, because also, this captures, I feel, the best way I've ever seen in any movie, that look that we all had burned into our brains of the nightmares of what's going to happen when the Russians drop the bomb and everything turns red outside, Mm -hmm. which I had a lot. And I'm not discounting that Night of the Comet may actually have been part of where I got the image from. But that look that this movie has of everything with the red filters creating the red skies from the comet effect, that was the 1980s, early to mid 80s, particularly.
0: It is a remarkably Cold War oh, movie, absolutely. too.
1: It's definitely where yeah. the, the
0: comet is basically a stand in yes. for nuclear weapons and the zombies are sort of a stand-in for like the chaos of nuclear fallout and decay
1: and communist infiltration i mean again that's yeah. 50s because like and all that's the, the 50s sure all the alien invasion 50s movies were the aliens were a metaphor for communism and the invasion of the soviets and what's going to happen and that's it's the same thing so we we're going through like what now they love to say the second cold war i mean arguably it never ended but the second cold war it's been like 40
0: years so i guess we're due for another one is that how it's going
1: we kind of are yeah when you talk see all the stuff with putin and everything we've been in one for i'm not even sure you can call it cold really it's not really that cold so there's a lot of that in this it's very it does encapsulate a lot of the 80s it also has one of the truly greatest examples successful examples of the use of an 80s hit where they had to re-record it for money purposes when Cyndi Lauper's uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun plays during the iconic Let's Go to the Mall sequence in this, except they didn't want to spend the money to license her version, but they could spend the money to license the song and then got it re-recorded. And that happens in many movies. And yet this one is so close to the original. I can't remember the name of the singer they got for it, but So close to the original that you could be forgiven for thinking, wait a minute, did they spend the money on Cyndi Lauper's recording? Which they did not. Mm -mm. But it's great. And 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 it's
0: the right song for the moment. Yes,
1: definitely. So
0: you kind of need it there. But I think for me, what I really like about how the movie starts is that it really just hurls you right into it. You've got the narration that tells you, This comet's coming and people should be afraid of it. And yet they're not. And it probably killed the dinosaurs. And, you know, it's coming to Earth. Merry Christmas. And then, you know, you see just the the sea of humanity, like celebrating this, that scientists have tried to tell them is dangerous. And they're like, it's a comet. Neat. And they're having parties in the streets. And, the same
1: like, stupidity you see years later in Independence Day, and yep. everybody's waiting for the alien ships. Yes, yeah.
0: same energy right. of like on the top of the rooftops and in Independence Day with yeah. the big posters, being like "Welcome to Earth."
1: Her dumb friend.
0: So yeah. it's the same kind of feeling, and like you, the viewer, already know more than the characters sure. when it's starting because you've had the narration; mm-hmm. <laughs> they haven't. And so when you have the TV reporter being like, oh, the first areas the comet would have passed over, uh, telecommunications are down and we can't seem to contact anybody to see how cool it was. But uh, I'm sure it'll be great when it gets to us. So, you know, surprise, surprise, it's not that great when it gets to them. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's the most magnificent thing they've ever seen right before the comet dehydrates you to the point where you turn to red dust.
1: It's also fascinating to me, by the way, I could list at least a half a dozen other examples from the 60s to the 80s of sci-fi and horror things. I saw as a kid where the central trope of the threat was people are being turned into dust or ashes or piles of things. Mm-hmm. I remember there's a Star Trek episode where people are turned into little dust things that can be crushed that always creeped me out as a kid and it's it's that's like a whole little weird sub thread of like people turn to dust and and yet there's a sense of humor to it in this with the fact that when they raised clothes are just laying there in the piles of dust where they yeah. were i even caught this time rewatching it i just never really paid attention when she first walks out of the theater the next morning you just hear her walking down the street and all the clothes you just hear her say something, like uh, clothes everywhere
0: <laughs> like what oh, is this she i guess i mean if you've seen it you know what we're talking about but our main character right. is here
1: sorry plot oh, plot synopsis plot
0: synopsis i don't know we get on tangents but that's regina who's one of two sisters the older sister who works Catherine in Mary Stewart works in a movie theater and spends the night in the projection room with her boyfriend of the moment mm-hmm. and Her sister, Samantha, who is played by Kelly Maroney, who gets into a fight with their stepmother because her stepmother is clearly not much of a stepmother and is sleeping with the neighbor while their father is off with the Green Berets. So she spends the night in the shed, like trying to run away from home. And by happenstance, that is the thing that protects both of them from the comet. Because they're encased in some kind of steel structure that makes them, I guess, sort of shielded from its effects. Although
1: perhaps not Sam so much, but we'll talk about that. We will. And also key to beautiful, uh, quick, simple setup for their characters and their expertise in weaponry is that their father is a military person Mm -hmm. and treated them like boys because he wanted boys. So now we know everything we need to know about why they can handle themselves in a gunfight and why they know weapons.
0: It's a great exposition speech because sometimes you get that exposition speech and you're like, oh, no, especially in 50s sci-fi. Like in 50s sci-fi, suddenly someone will be like, maybe we should explain the science to them. And so you get a guy who's telling you all about how like water works or something, you know, mm-hmm. like, well the human body is comprised of X percent of what and right. like, you don't get that in this. But you do get in your small cast of characters, Regina explaining to Hector, who is a, a long haul trucker who himself was shielded by sleeping in his cab.
1: Robert Beltran, who Star Trek fans know as Chicote from Voyager and who Twitter users know as one of the most rabid MAGA nut jobs on the internet. So the hell with Chicote. But anyway,
0: but, you know, it's it's a delightful character study here anyway.
1: He's he's good in Night of the Comet. I'm willing to still look at him.
0: So she has a moment of explaining to Hector that their dad kind of held out hope until they were in middle school that somehow they would also be Green Berets, which at the time, I guess, was sort of really far-fetched now maybe not as far-fetched but also clearly they had no interest in right. joining the military either and it's a a natural conversation between the two of them to explain why it is that they're so like puffed up and tough and like hard on the outside
1: and also probably we can use that to explain the light but overt racism Mm -hmm. in the movie as well mainly coming from regina yes who spends her early encounters with hector calling him hector and making jokes that are incredibly inappropriate which he immediately kind of throws back at her in a playful way like i get what you're doing but what we've come to over the years it's interesting is that i don't think we ever get any indication samantha has that at all but you once told me Not recently, but like one time we watched it, you told me that you always felt that the early scenes with her and Hector is her overplaying her confidence and her attitude because she kind of wants to impress this guy that she knows who she is and how she handles herself. And she's like playing with a gun, like, you know, like, oh, this thing you got here. And that a lot of it is like her playing a role by way of her father, which is probably where the racism came from
0: it's also her playing a role of being slightly tougher maybe than she actually right. is because that is a survival instinct. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of women do in sort of panic situations. Cause when Hector first shows up, he doesn't know who they are or whether they're safe or not. And he's trying to order Samantha into the light so that he can see her. And Regina's first reaction is to say why don't you just let my sister go and you and i can talk this out and figure out what you want like she feels like she has to place herself between samantha and danger that's like her reflex and that also kind of breaks down (laughs) a little later which we'll get to sort of as we get into the third act but i do think that that tough facade is part of it of like, don't screw with me, I can handle myself, I'll protect my sister, I will take you on. Except that it kind of veers into an area where I feel like it's almost cosplay. Like she's not really being herself in yeah. that moment.
1: Yeah. Um, I also want to go back to something you said about like how in the old fifties movies you always get like the standard classroom scene where they start right. explaining the stuff. And they don't do this because this is one of the ones that undercuts that by putting Which it's interesting now that I think of it, I never really thought of it this way, is that uh, there are some more recent movies that felt like they were doing something innovative and different, which they still are. It's still unusual in that when you do these kind of stories, we always tend to center the story on the scientists fighting the threat or the military fighting the threat. Right. It's rare to put the, the camera with regular people, although that's become more common now I mean, Walking Dead itself is kind of like that to the point where the show made going to the CDC at the first season kind of like an end of season thing, like how odd this is. That would have been the main plot. Right. And uh, I also remember one of the really great found footage movies, the early 2000s Cloverfield, where the whole conceit was we're not following the movie that's happening at the same time as the movie we're in because we're with the regular people. But over there somewhere are the characters in the big movie that are actually fighting the monster. (laughs) We just never see them. And this is the same in that there is a scientific group, but we can't trust them. They're deeply affected by the comet. And although they haven't transit. Oh, so we still not done it. So the comet's coming. It's Halley's Comet. Everybody in the 80s was afraid of Halley's Comet in the same way that they were afraid. Maybe not so much. There were people that thought what's going to happen. But you know, the the Harbinger of Doom kind of stuff about Haley's Comet goes back, you know, gener- you know, to human history. And um so it was a great premise for the eighties too. What's gonna happen when Haley's Comet comes back again. And we and besides Regina and Sam being our two point of view characters is two like LA girls who are caught up in the complete collapse of society in an homage to Empty City movies that Eberhardt loved, like one of my favorites, The Omega Man, mm-hmm. which this movie is very, very much a semi-almost remake of in many of its beats and moments, and it's also in L.A., an empty L.A. But he also has cited over the years things like The World of Flesh and the Devil and Last Man on Earth, another version of Matheson's story. But that scientific group, is an underground organization that apparently saw it coming, knew it was coming, and would normally be the experts we would rely on in a story to say what's going on, except they already seem like they were, from the beginning, corrupt elitist, who just wanted to survive themselves and have been affected by the comet, which either turns you to dust, uh, affects you enough to turn you into a flesh-eating mutant of some kind before you eventually turn to dust. Right. Or infects you with the transitioning effect that takes a longer period of time, like days, and takes you through the cycle to zombie to dust, which Basically, is where the like, scientists are. Yeah,
0: it's like, it just depends on your rate of exposure. Right. So if you were 100% protected, then you got zero exposure and nothing will happen to you. There's like no, Regina. There's no lingering effect of the comet on the earth. Right. It's like you were either exposed as it passed or you didn't. Right. If you were exposed like out in the street partying, you were instantly turned to dust hence all the clothes. Mhm. And there's cool stuff too like cars in the middle of the street yeah with like the radio still running and like dust in the seats mm-hmm. and like that kind of eerie end of the world stuff
1: and then there are the mutant zombies with as you've pointed out many times truly fantastic 80s style zombie makeup with the sunken eyes Extraordinary. Skull looking great work who are definitely eating people but they don't dwell on that in the way that a zombie movie would but they refer to it enough that they're trying to let you know that it's happening yeah without really wanting to dwell like they aren't going to do dawn of the dead stuff and show people being torn apart but we do know they're eating people and cats at least a cat we know for sure right Um, and a few people yeah so it's happening and then of course most tellingly By the time you get to the end and the scientists are trying to figure out a way to preserve themselves because that's all they care about, they are in one of the most creepy and effective combinations of music on the soundtrack, lighting in the movie, and just storytelling. They have people that they're keeping at the very moment of death in a lab and just using them as uh, blood producers to develop uh, a serum. But really what that means metaphorically is we're really in the realm of vampires at this point. The scientists have become vampires and they're draining the blood of living humans to survive, which, again, fits neatly with Matheson and Mm -hmm. I Am Legend and all that. So we're in a hybrid kind of thing. Yeah. And then, as you said, if you are protected, you're fine, like Regina. If you are semi-protected, maybe not, which is what brings us to samantha kelly maroney's character who if you watch the movie now of course you've all seen it by now at least once but maybe if you have only seen it the once to listen to this you might not have paid attention enough to see Mm. but it is very very clear through most of the movie the movie keeps dropping hints that samantha may perhaps not have been protected enough in the shed to escape being affected by the comet
0: she's incredibly thirsty
1: she has uh, panic uh, rashes that Mm -hmm. she's had before but this time it feels like we're being told oh this might not be that right and it all leads up to a scene in which the one sympathetic scientist played by mary warrenov who anybody knows cult movies knows her and paul Bartel and eating raoul which if you also know that, you know, yep, Robert Beltran was Raul and eating Raoul, So we're in tangential Warhol territory <laughs> with Night of the Comet. She basically kills her in a scene late in the movie by giving her like a mercy shot to kill her. And Moroni definitely plays that scene with the standard movie version of dying, where you close your eyes and make sure the audience sees your chest stops moving. She's dead, except that she then survives and we have a semi-happy ending, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found out from Eberhardt that now is pretty well known when you look this up is the original draft of the script had Samantha dying. And all the indicators throughout the movie were very much meant to be leading you to that. Right. And then somehow during the shooting of the movie, they all just suddenly realized this is too much of a downer. For the viewing audience, we need to keep her alive and basically change the last 15 minutes or so in ways that I've still never one thing I I regret is I never asked him exactly what was the original ending. I, and by the way, if anybody listening has access to an original draft script for some reason or ever heard him or anybody talk about it. I'm still not entirely clear what the hell was the ending of this movie where Samantha actually died, because I don't know how that would play out. I
0: mean, I still think it's the same ending, just minus Samantha, but.
1: Yeah, but it would be so much darker. But anyway, the movie changed and they kept her alive, which means that all the hints that she might have been affected by partial exposure. Red hair. Turn out to be nothing in this. Right. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's very much like the old joke about Wizard of Oz, where there's the. Like we grew up uh, of a certain age with the reference to there's always like a movie that has a jitterbug scene. We used to always say a movie has a jitterbug scene when there's something in the movie that indicates something and you know it's missing because there's a scene in Wizard of Oz where they where they refer to the witch says something. I'm going to send something to take the fight out of them. And then the next scene, the monkeys are showing up and they're all real tired for some reason. And the monkeys easily capture them because they cut an entire musical sequence called the jitterbug where they she sends an actual jitterbug to <laughs> infect them and make them dance until they're too tired to move but they cut the jitterbug sequence so to me like a lot of these scenes are like kind of like jitterbug stuff it's like you know something's coming and then all of a sudden no she's okay mm. so
0: i think for me i really respect the fact that he realized in the moment that it was a bad idea and managed to catch it in time to fix it. And as we talked about, clearly didn't have the budget to refilm some of the sequences. And so really had to leave in the death scene and then just explain it away as, Oh no, she didn't kill her. It was sodium pentothal. And you know, she just needed to make her look dead. I think the reason that he probably Realized it is that the two of them had such an amazing relationship on the set. Like Kelly Maroney and Katherine Mary Stewart. Like the two of them, by all accounts, really functioned as sisters on the set. And they had a great rapport and a great relationship. And the way they played off of each other, and it comes through in the movie. And it's really one of the main reasons I tell people to watch this film. Because it's a movie from the mid 80s where your main characters are two teenage girls, one of whom is literally a cheerleader. Like she's in a cheerleading outfit for 70% of the movie, but they're also not portrayed as being like vacant or like completely like helpless in the way that a lot of women in 80s horror were portrayed yeah i mean samantha is flippant and she's clearly much more of a teenager than regina is and you could argue it's because regina protects her from a lot of the adult stuff that goes on in their life and allows her to be a teenager and has to kind of be the parent when their father is absent but she still knows how to take care of herself. And so does Regina, as evidenced by them, the two of them together, basically fighting a department store full of, like, whacked out men.
1: Mutant incels. Yeah. It's also interesting. I've noticed it more the last couple of times we watched it, that it's Samantha. It's Kelly Moroni that does the heaviest lifting emotionally in the movie. It's almost kind of telling in a negative. I mean, I don't really have much to criticize this movie about because i love the movie but there are things i could definitely say are flaws like the fact that i do feel the movie kind of falls apart in the last 10 15 minutes and becomes a completely different tone but i think that has a lot to do with that changing that happened yeah and Um, you
0: love it so much by the time you get there you're like "Eh, it's not the best but it doesn't
1: matter it's fine and and you know you want a couple jokes to lead you out and 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 lighten the mood it's i can't really criticize it for anything but another thing too though. Is it's interesting that Regina is basically our lead character, but we never have a scene in which Catherine Mary Stewart gets to emote about anything that's Mm. happening to her. But Kelly Maroney gets to have that amazing scene where she talks about her friend and the guy who is going to ask her out, and she starts crying. And like real crying, like not stage crying. She really is falling apart. Yeah. And it's a beautiful scene because she really is a real person and not goofy. And clearly she's deeper than she seems. Like she puts that on. And it's like she's got the most emotional scene in the movie.
0: There was this new guy at school, Paul Morgan, I transferred from Taft, Junior.
1: Oh, I don't hang around with juniors much. I liked him. I mean, he was from Taft, but
0: he was nice. Kathy said he was probably gonna ask me out. (laughs) Kathy, she was flunking algebra and she was trying to figure out some way to keep her parents from finding out.
1: And yet we don't really get a look in on Regina's mind the way we do her. Arguably, you could say Samantha really is the lead because we also see in her head because she's the one with the dream sequence.
0: Not just a dream sequence, but a fake out double dream sequence where you think she's woken up and she actually hasn't. And we've gone through that over and over again because it's essentially a scene where she's driving a car and just like drinking a beer and like mourning the apocalypse and gets pulled over and is essentially happy that there's other people alive and then instantly terrified of the police who pull her over and they're zombies. It's arguably some of the most graphic violence Mm -hmm. in the film where, I mean, she's crushing their hands as they're trying to choke her And just they're tearing at her and she wakes up and goes into the bathroom and like starts taking her clothes off to take a sink bath, which I think we've all done at some point. And that's
1: also the movie's like one, like, um, like allowance to like horror tropes of like get the girl in underwear kind of thing, which this movie doesn't do otherwise.
0: And, uh, and then the same zombie cops bust into the bathroom and start tearing at her and she wakes up for real. And it's a very powerful sequence because it's showing one, this sort of fear of authority to the most brutal violence in the film is being perpetrated by police officers, not just police, but I mean, really terrifying zombie police, some of their best makeup, Mm -hmm. I think, in the film. And that they're aggressive, that they're not just attacking her. They're really ripping at Mm -hmm. her. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone over it in my mind of, like, what it's supposed to be or what it's supposed to tell us about her. And I don't really know. I mean, you wouldn't know unless they told you from Mm -hmm. a writing perspective what they were going for. But it clearly tells me that there is something... For her that is traumatic about not just men, but men in uniform in a place of authority. And you could argue, oh, it's just the sort of an absent father thing. And, you know, feeling like her dad's a monster for leaving them alone with this terrible stepmother. Or maybe she really has had terrible experiences with other people in uniform growing up on military bases it's hard to say you
1: also do get the vibe when uh she wakes up screaming that regina has had to do this with her before Mm -hmm. it feels very much like she's used to that like oh samantha's having another screamy thing yeah and she she knows how to handle her nightmare and then there's like so much subtlety between the two of them like like sam kind of pushes her away like i'm fine and and regina has this look of like i know you're not fine but all right you know like there's a lot in that moment that's like, we've done this a million times, and I know, but she's getting older maybe now, too, so like she doesn't want right. to be comforted, you know?
0: I mean, really, Regina's been de facto both parents yeah. growing up, right. because their father was mostly absent, their stepmother clearly does not care about having children, or their father. I mean, she's she's clearly sleeping with their neighbor, and she even tells someone at the party... That, like, oh, I'm never going to marry a man with kids again. As if to say, like, she knows this is not a permanent situation. Just She's just living step. off his money while he's yeah. away in South America. Right. And, you know, he comes back, eh, she'll she'll divorce him and find someone else.
1: I should mention, by the way, and uh, I, I have up the old zombie mania chapter. Cause I always like when it's something that we did in that, I always like to go back and see what, what things we did in that. Because we pulled together some really interesting stuff back then. But it's worth noting that we had noticed the um the double fake out dream sequence very much looked like it was inspired by a similar sequence in American Werewolf in London that had been mm. a few years earlier that did exactly that, where the character wakes up after the nightmare and then the nightmare's still happening and this had be had become sort of a recurring horror trope right then. Yeah. As something that was going on.
0: It's a great way to sort of just low key signal the level of surreality that's happening in the real world
1: and the level of anxiety the character has exactly you saw oh, that's another one, even many years later, you saw in uh Star Trek first contact opens with him having the Borg dream and then he goes to the mirror, but the Borg thing comes out of him, and it's still a dream that's i mean it, it becomes a cliche, yeah, but and it's an easy way to get the audience to jump twice, but
0: you know but it's also a cliche. Because we've all experienced it Mm -hmm. at some point. Like, I think all of us have experienced thinking we've woken up from a dream and we haven't. And like that idea is at the core of a lot of science fiction and horror storytelling of like, what is real? What is the real world? Is this reality? Is it not? And trying to come to terms with that. The fact that we're at this point of science. (laughs) In the world, and basically, the answer to why do we dream is a shrug. Like, there's yeah. a lot of theories and a lot of explanations that people have come up with, but none of them are concrete. Nobody really knows for sure. And it's why it makes it such a rich medium for storytelling because it's something we've all experienced, but it's also something that we still can't explain. Mm-hmm. And by plugging something like that into a story like this, it allows you to explore the tension that they're feeling without completely showing all of it, which is uh, also a great shortcut when you're on a low budget
1: budgetary limitation and right. they don't
0: have a lot of money. Like they have this concept for the makeup for mm-hmm. what they want people to look like who are in transition mm-hmm. from being human to being a pile of dust. So and, we
1: never get hordes. No, we never get groups
0: which makes sense in this kind of circumstance because most people were exposed enough right for them to be completely right. obliterated i mean to the point where in trying to explain to samantha what's going on regina picks up doris's shoe and dumps doris right. out of it
1: which also is one of my favorite subtle moments in the movie where she's trying to convince her of everything and sam just looks around and then just slowly closes the front door's <laughs> <laughs> One are like, just literally, I'm shutting out the world. I don't want to know about this right. it's a beautiful moment.
0: I'm just going to have a bowl of raisin bran and and start my day.
1: And given the incredible chemistry we keep mentioning between mm-hmm. the two of them, they're a great team. Great team that exists to this day, too, because as so many of these people have done, they've transitioned into being longtime uh, convention guests. Yeah. Catherine Mary Stewart also has quite a following from Last Starfighter and some other stuff. So they've done a lot of stuff together and are constantly, the, their friendship has continued. But it's interesting, I was looking back at this stuff about how Eberhardt did not like the idea of how movies always had siblings that didn't look like they matched. And the thing is, when you look at real families, plenty of people have siblings. They don't look. At, you know,
0: I don't think my sister and I look all that much yeah. like each other. So, I
1: mean, at, in itself, it's a movie trope to say siblings should look like they come from family but then of course you look at people like Joey Lawrence and his brothers and they just look like the same kids stamped out over and over
0: I have trouble telling the jonases apart <laughs> Yeah it
1: happens but it's not all the time but he wanted to cast either two blonde actresses or two brunettes mm-hmm. and have it and the original plan was Catherine Mary Stewart with Heather Langenkamp as Samantha And reports differ about whether she didn't do it because of Nightmare on Elm Street or a salary dispute or something or other. But there was also an actress, Lisa Langlois, who was supposed to do it with Kelly Maroney. And they wound up with the two of them and it was meant to be that way anyway. So that's fine. Although the interesting thing is before we move on to someone else I wanted to talk about, as I wanted to make sure you, you got in. Um, in talking about the ending and their chemistry, there is the one weird glaring moment you've yeah. pointed out where you just don't buy the part where Regina's willing to let them like fly her away from Samantha to the yeah, they split them up right before Mary Warnoff's character is basically in the first draft going to kill Samantha do the mercy killing. They convince Regina to get on the helicopter and go back to their base with the promise that, oh, we'll follow you, we'll follow you. But why she would agree to split up, I don't get.
0: It boggles my mind because Regina's whole life exists in order to protect Samantha. That everything goes weird. at the movie theater, gets attacked by this zombie. And her first instinct is to get on her boyfriend's scooter and get home and look for samantha Mm -hmm. like she doesn't go to look for uh help she doesn't drive to a hospital she doesn't drive to a police station or military base or anything she sees something is wrong and she goes straight home looking for samantha who she finds in many other movies you would not Right. Like Hector drives home to his mother's house to look for his mother and sister and they are dust, Mm
1: -hmm. you know,
0: like not everybody gets to have that. Yeah. So from the moment she finds her, they are not separated. They are together. They're in the radio station. They are like literally sleeping on an L-shaped couch, like next to each other. They have what I think is really just a phenomenal scene because I really... I don't like scenes with guns in movies. I really think we would do society a hell of a lot of good by just transitioning away from even using firearms in film. However, (laughs) that being said, they have this amazing scene where the two of them are like testing out some machine guns. And it's one of those great moments where you talk about the chemistry the actors had on set where the gun keeps jamming. And it literally did on set when they were filming it and they adjusted the script and had this great little improv moment between the two of them. Whereas Samantha says, daddy would have gotten us an Uzi and Regina shrugs and the car didn't know the difference. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like you're, you're shooting it. It works, whatever. But they are sort of struggling. They, They fight the army of zombie incels in the department store who are going to kill them. And Regina's still trying to negotiate like the release of her sister at this point and protect her. And then they get saved by the scientists who come in looking for survivors. And the next thing you know, Regina's waving from a helicopter and Samantha's chugging a Diet Pepsi and scratching her itchy rash on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. and like waiting for her. And the setup there is that Regina's going to go ahead to the scientific community, and Samantha's going to stay behind in case Hector comes back so that he knows that it's okay to go with them. And it's just bad writing. It just is. It's not something Regina would have done. She would not have trusted these scientists enough to just say yeah sure i'll go with you sam can stay here like separate them she
1: sure doesn't trust them when she's having her little interview with the the guy yeah and so why would and and the thing is this isn't even from the changes no because that's from the first draft or like the original version of the story that had to split them up so that they could kill off samantha and
0: you're still they're still telegraphing as regina is flying away that samantha is transitioning that she's infected that her skin is drying out that she's thirsty yeah you know that there there's no hope for her and that's sort of the the premise of of mary Waranoff's character Saying, i'm mm-hmm. just going to put her out of her misery because she's like the only sympathetic scientist yeah. in the bunch right and her transitioning just basically means that she's becoming dumber but she's not becoming cruel and like that i think is really telling it's almost like the way you transition into this zombie state amplifies all of your character traits of which, who you
1: are which by the way is why i always thought it was interesting and just like quirky like the two like i call them nurses but obviously they're all scientists but like the two that uh that they've the they've also captured two little kids and they're gonna like drain them of blood and the two goofy like nurse types who are like telling the kids they're gonna live with santa claus the whole all the scenes with them play semi-comedically and goofy and they seem like they're like they're seriously impaired yeah, But then that also might mean that that's, like, because Waranov is saying she's having trouble writing mm-hmm. and spelling things. Like, degradation in, in, like, cognitive functions appears to be part of it. Their thing is they're getting goofier. She's getting stupider. And then the leader, I wanted to talk about in a minute. Yeah. He seems to be getting more belligerent, like, angrier at the drop of a hat.
0: Yeah, it really, like, amplifies who you are and clearly these the two women who are the ones harvesting the blood even when they were not like starting to transition into comet zombies they were not good people right like they do the whole guy like, oh, i love working with kids as they're preparing to literally terminate their brain function <laughs> and drain them of blood right and talking about how shiny regina's hair is and oh right. like i wish i had you know hair like that well let's kill her and drain her blood And that tells you who they are as people. So it's it's clear that, like, the majority of these scientists were not good people to begin with, as evidenced by the fact that they clearly didn't work harder to try to save humanity. Instead, they're like, oh, we'll just build a bunker and save ourselves and then forget to close the ventilation shafts as the comet passes and just breathe in that sweet, sweet comet dust.
1: Special uh, uh, kudos, by the way, to, to the one who plays like the de facto leader of the scientific community, which is Jeffrey Lewis, who anybody who grew up with certainly 70s, 80s television and film will remember he was one of the longest running um, uh, collaborators with Clint Eastwood and appeared in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, including both the orangutan movies and uh, Bronco Billy, which was on cable in the early days four thousand times where he owns a circus. I must have seen that a million times and I can't remember a thing about it, but I know I saw it. <laughs> but for me, the thing I remember most is when I favorite things, and I know Eastwood's problematic too, but I still like is the horror western High Plains Drifter, which is one of the one of my all time favorite westerns because it's a flat out horror movie. And Jeffrey Lewis is the leader of this uh group of outlaws who are just some of the most deplorable garbage you could ever imagine and the real villain of the movie in this he's excellent there's so many touches that i feel fit lewis's kind of quirky way of working that i feel he brought to it there's one scene you talk about that you like where you see him fighting with mary warnov's character but you never hear what they're saying because the helicopter's playing it's a great scene there's also a scene i love where He's just ranting about, you know, we're not all going to turn over at once. We're going to turn at different times. And he keeps yelling while he's going down the hall off camera, just walking, walking, (laughs) walking. But he's still yelling back at the guy.
0: Not just yelling, but finding a way to knock him down a peg by telling him that, like, psychology is not an exact (laughs) science. But, like, he, you know, telling him, I think less of you because your your scientific area is psychology.
1: One of my favorite lines in the whole movie.
0: Hey no
1: such thing as santa claus what you don't believe in santa he says it with the same gravitas that he brings to everything else in the rest of the movie it's ridiculous and he's great so it's like great and and he looks great in the makeup at the end too we get get like one glimpse of him as the fully transitioned zombie
0: yeah we keep bringing it up but i cannot emphasize enough how we've seen so many lower budget films including lower budget studio films yeah where the makeup is clearly where they slashed the most of the budget right this is not one of them this has a limited cast it has sort of a a limited scope i guess of apocalypse they've sort of created an apocalypse that was for the most part just instantaneous dust So you don't have to show bodies decomposing. You don't see like society transitioning into chaos because there aren't that many people left. And it allows you to take the few sort of infected humanoid characters that you have and really go for it with the makeup and the sunken eyes are really extraordinary as like their whole faces are just sort of retreating towards the skull and it's really well done. It's consistent across all the characters that you see that have this effect happening. So it's not like all over the place, like, oh yeah, your main actor, they really showed them, you know, desiccating, but the rest of them, they just kind of slap something on them. No, it's all of them to the same level and the same precision. And most of the shots are very short. They're not long. You don't see much of them. They're barely on screen, but clearly they prioritized that and said, we have to have this effect and it has to be done right and consistently.
1: Well, here's something that's interesting too is, you know, I say how one of my favorite things is when we find connections to other things and never knew that they were connected, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And this is not a name that at least I'm sure there are people that are aficionados even more than me or you that might know, but this is not a name that comes up alongside the Rick Bakers and Rob Botines and, but it's David B. Miller who did this for some reason, uh, even with zombie man and other stuff, I never looked up David B. Miller, but he's the, there are other people, but he's the primary makeup designer. And therefore I think the person And quite clearly, as you'll see, we can credit with that particular create the look of a skull coming through the skin and everything sinking. Well, he started his career on a few fantasy movies, including my all-time favorite sword and sorcery movie ever, Beastmaster, which has extraordinary, weird, innovative makeup designs Mm. in it. But before he worked on Night of the Comet, He was one of the uncredited makeup artists on Michael Jackson's Thriller.
0: Well, clearly that makes
1: sense. Same zombies. He went on from that to Mutant,
0: which we have seen
1: several times with Riff tracks. And remember we commented how the zombies look good in that? They did. David Miller. You talk about low-budget makeup looking way better than it deserves to. That is mutant. And a couple other things is that after right around Night of the Comet, he also worked on Dreamscape, which Mm. also features a zombie scene in that that is amazing and creepy on a train. And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, Cocoon. And the last one that really makes sense from this perspective is in 1986, he was the designer on night of the creeps which is one of the key ones that uses that same it's the same guy same guy basically he's these,
0: the guy you bring in when you want that desiccated sunken skull face. look
1: and how to accomplish that well with the standard thing that makeup artists always talk about where you want it to look like there's less of the person but you have to do it by adding more because you need to add prosthetics To create the illusion of depth and loss of skin. Yeah. And so you have to trick the eye into thinking that what's clearly more of a face or a bigger face is not. And that skull look is fantastic.
0: And some of the credit has to go to lighting.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not just the makeup. Sure, right. Because you have to light it right. You have to shoot it right and so but it's
0: it's very difficult
1: well i mean that's the other thing this is for a whole other show but like you know the makeup issues in return of living dead for instance are legendary one of them was fired they're all over the map
0: dawn of the dead yeah i mean enjoy the movie they're just weird blue foam they're just sprayed blue
1: yeah so so this is uh it makes total sense it really does same guy and and that is i would say looking back That particular look, I think I would consider the top definitive 80s zombie look Mm. is that look. And he wasn't the only one because it did turn up in other things, but it seems like he may be one of the ones that set the standard for that's that look you want. And it's it's excellent.
0: It's fantastic in combination with a lot of other things. It's sort of just the ambiance in general. We went over it a bit in the beginning of this episode, but you combine those makeup effects with some really interesting lighting effects. You know, you've got that red tinge on the sky uh. that just washes over everything. You've got the neon inside the radio station. That
1: radio station's insane. It's insane. No, Isn't is it like black leather sofa, like a it's semicircular? It's
0: huge open room full of hard surfaces and high ceilings and neon yeah. signs and then a recording station in the middle Just of in it. in the middle. No clear understanding of sound design. Right. But the bathrooms in the radio station are one of the most 80s things. I've ever seen I mean the lighting and the colors and then when you get down into the scientists bunker the unbelievable like single color light washes in different like mm-hmm. zones of a shot where you'll see like a blue wash in the foreground and a red wash in the background
1: which again they very much wanted to have sort of an ec comics vibe the creep show also was yeah. gonna like dial up a lot too i
0: mean they really go for it yeah so you combine the makeup with that with just really cool like synthy stuff going on with the sound again especially in the scientist bunker where you've got this synth track going on where part of like the baseline of it almost sounds like a heartbeat where like you realize that's the heartbeat of the people that they have like captured
1: that track when you see the hand and you're in the the lab that is the most zombie movie track in the whole yeah movie i love that track i also love the piece that plays when she's driving through the city for the first time Mm -hmm. on her bike Mm -hmm. and it sounds like musically like the city has been torn apart with like this like screaming guitar sound and everything it's fantastic
0: It's just a really well put together film. The ending doesn't really make a lot of sense. It becomes a different movie in the last 10 minutes. And I think part of that was probably just they already had all this footage they had to use because they couldn't reshoot it. But they didn't want to kill Samantha. They had to just kind of... Roll with it. Regina becomes a completely different human being in the last five minutes. I know. It's way <laughs> the too movie. It's, it's a little too much. And you can tell it was done on the fly. And if they had had time, I think they could have probably written a better last 10 minutes.
1: I definitely wanted to mention, because it's something we talk about every time we watch it, is that if you ever watch this movie and you didn't grow up in an era of coin-op video games, please, please remember That is not the way the high scoring works.
0: This time in particular, I paid attention to the fact that they have a video game consultant in the end credits who did not consult properly.
1: Video game consultant did not explain to them that when you have the high scores on a coin op, they load from the bottom up. Right. They keep scrolling in. And yet... Regina is pissed because somebody else has taken what was it three I think it's one, like a,
0: somewhere in the middle one of the
1: slots but she like aims a score at that slot so that she can erase that slot and then takes that slot and puts her initials in you can't do that you would have to keep getting scores to wait until that one went off the list
0: right you'd have to get enough scores so that all of your scores were Are higher than
1: that than that and it would eventually drop down off the list you yeah. can't Put one She in just the overwrites it. Yeah, they don't understand how video games driven me crazy since 1984. So <laughs> don't do that, people. Get your video and listen to your video game consultant. I'm convinced that whoever it was probably said something, but they were like, "Yeah, but we're going to do it this way because that's the way we want to do it." Because that's usually how consulting in movies works. Yes, they pay them to say something, and they're like, "Yeah, but we don't like that." So we'll
0: just ignore it. Whatever. Thanks for chatting.
1: I just was looking through to see if there are any other little bits and pieces. We didn't mention it directly, but I did want to say it because I know it's Bray Bradbury is close to both our hearts. That oh, yeah. The early shots of like the empty environments after the comet very much give us There Will Come Soft Rains vibes. And I grew up with Leonard Nimoy's reading of that on a record, and that's very much a part of my 80s, too, was that that story coming back again to, you know...
0: And what's interesting is that I've never heard the Leonard Nimoy reading of it, but just completely separate from your experience with it, that was always the passage that stuck with me from reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I even like used part of that passage as like the cover page for this like uh college essay project. That was your that music thing?
1: Uh no, it was a oh. different one actually. Oh okay. Yeah yeah.
0: Um, it was an anthropology course that I'd oh. been taking, and I I used that as like the cover of the report because it's just so, it's so melancholy and like. Aren't we almost there?
1: I'm hearing them in my head, and I think isn't it? It's August sixth, twenty twenty six. 2026. It's August sixth, twenty twenty six. We're but, not that far off. I think it's twenty twenty six.
0: Uh oh. Oh. But it, it gave us both that vibe when, like, the pool equipment yes. is waking up yeah. and the people aren't. And it's like yes. making
1: the little rubber duck move in the pool. Your standard bike or tricycle or whatever it is. You always got to throw one of those in. Yeah. Yep. For those who don't know, one of the interesting curiosities about Night of the Comet is it was designed to launder money, which <laughs> Eberhardt was very open about when he talked to me. He didn't care because it's fine. But in fact, I mean, he wasn't
0: money laundering. We've also
1: covered Tom Eberhardt because a while back we did our episode where we did Soul Survivor. Correct. Which is a movie I had never seen up until that point. I was very interested in seeing his earlier film. And in fact, apparently, Soul Survivor is what put him in danger for a while because it's when the producers finally got a copy and screened Soul Survivor that they thought about taking the movie away from him, apparently. (laughs) But it, it worked out and he kept it and he was fine. And as Kelly and Uh, Catherine, Mary Stewart, and everybody have always said they loved working with him, apparently. And it obviously was a very good collaborative endeavor for everybody. Mm -hmm. The movie was made by Atlantic, which at the time had had such a huge success with Valley Girl that they didn't know what to do with all the money. God
0: forbid they pay the people involved
1: with the movie. They were not prepared to account for all the money that Valley Girl made in a way, I guess, for whoever else was investing or whatever. So they wanted to launder the money through another project or two to hide some of it. And Night of the Comet was their place to hide Valley Girl profits, uh, which at the time was called Teenage Mutant Horror Comet Zombies. That was the original full title. And um, It's
0: an interesting just sort of side note to it all or footnote to it all to think that without Valley Girl, which has like a protagonist who is arguably in my opinion like the worst of 80s portrayal of women you wouldn't get to have night of the comet right which is i think some of the best 80s portrayal of women and like you can find flaws in this movie there are some language choices yeah and we uh, pointed
1: out some things a couple of
0: slurs that they use yes that's right sam uses a very unfortunate slur while sort of trying to I guess, decide whether or not Hector might be gay. Right. It's
1: it's almost impossible to avoid an 80s movie. Something's going to come up yeah. at some point. Yeah. So,
0: I mean, it is not without problems in terms yeah. of like a sensitivity read of the film, but it's close to without them. Yeah. As close as you can get for 1984. And I think that it's it's kind of cool and interesting that without Valley Girl doing so well that this movie might not have had a chance to get off the ground.
1: And yet it also spent a lot of time being semi-obscure, largely because it had such a spotty home release. For a I'd long never time. seen it. I, I, We noted in the DVD notes, this is a story I love to tell about like the making of the book, because when we did the book, we were doing it, we, we wrote this book over the course of several years, from like 2003 to 2006, mm-hmm. when it came time to finally get everything delivered. One of the big problems was there was no DVD release of Night of the Comet up to that point. None. We were watching it on a tape, a VHS tape, for those of you that don't know. videotape (laughs) came before. And I talked to Eberhard about it, and he was heartbroken, but he was telling me, like in no uncertain terms, that no one knew who actually owned the rights at that point. It had gotten into that murky area that Hollywood often gets where no one either wants to know or bother to try to figure out because it takes too much effort and they were content to just let it sit. And Eberhardt said that it, it was heartbreaking, but he figured that there will never be a DVD release. And I vaguely remember at the time Kelly Maroney either telling me or I was reading, she for a while was championing the idea of doing a sequel. Mm hmm. But the only reason she was saying that was because she had told Tom she'd come up with a strategy where if she starts talking about a sequel, whoever the owners are will come out of the woodwork and want to talk to them and they'll find out who owns it. That was her strategy. It didn't work apparently or nothing came of it. But then I don't know how at some point Literally right before or right after our book was published, with a piece in the book where I mention in the book, I say one of the unforgivable crimes in this book, there is no DVD of Night of the Comet, and there probably won't be for a very long time. A DVD came out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and now we have a special edition, yeah, like still con- book
1: Blu ray of And it. I contacted Kelly and Tom right away and said, Do you know about this? And they both didn't know it existed and didn't know where it came from and they hadn't been sent copies amazing and i was like wouldn't you know and he said no this is mind-blowing and of course now it was a screen factory of course is a great version of it and blu-ray and it's 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 in circulation it's on streaming it's fine whatever whatever uh weird legal wrangle was happening at the time is over. But it's also fascinating how little they have regard for the actual creators of something where it just happened and they didn't even know.
0: And this is something I think is uh, maybe this is sort of our our parting tip for anyone who's doing a podcast or writing a book, you know, trying to put together even just a, a blog or a newsletter where you talk about any kind of media. Try to reach out to people. Because in a lot of cases, they're available and they have firsthand knowledge of the projects and they're so happy that (laughs) someone contacted them to talk about it. You know, we had this happen for us in a previous episode of the podcast where we were trying to figure out who created all the music for My Bloody Valentine. And it was a year where it was actually an anniversary year of My Bloody Valentine. They had this huge like collector's edition steelbook blu-ray they'd been advertising the heck out of and we thought oh maybe there'll be something in those releases talks about the music and we're looking at all of the extras listed on the disc and none of it is talking about the music there is conflicting stories online and citation needed on like wikipedia pages and things and so we took the name that had been listed on a like two degrees of separation wikipedia page and also one or two people that we thought the singing sounded like and just reached out we found contact information for them for reps for agents and the result was that we got on the phone with john mcdermott who is a canadian singer who's mostly known for like being more of a crooner and like well and
1: appropriate for this episode he's more well known for doing a lot of christmas and holiday stuff yeah
0: but he was friends with the director who needed music and he wrote and recorded all of it and his agent didn't know his
1: agent didn't know his agent apparently sent him an email saying you ever heard of this thing bloody valentine these people are asking about and McDermott was like yeah i did that (laughs) (laughs)
0: And he was so excited to get on the phone and talk about it and quite literally said to us, no one has ever asked me about this before.
1: Which is insane.
0: We literally just called him on his cell phone, like in his living room in Toronto. And he talked and would have talked, I think, for hours about it because he was having so much fun. He definitely
1: kept me longer than I expected. Recounting the process
0: of it all. And it was just... And I
1: know we're off on tangent, but it's true. I mean, the the, the other thing about it, too, it wasn't inconsequential, because that song is a big deal for a lot of the fans. That's a huge part of the movie, is that the big song at the end. Because
0: it's this whole folk ballad. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of a, a tangential roundabout way of saying, if the information is not available about a project, and there are still people with first-hand knowledge who or around who you can reach out to because eventually there won't be right. It's like over time, the likelihood of people involved with the project being around being reachable starts to diminish. So the fact that you were able to reach out at the time when you're writing the book to Tom Eberhardt and get all of this information oh, yeah. and, and have it and have the photos and have the, the contact and the stories about it. If, No one thinks to ask and to chronicle these things. The information just disappears with the people who are holding on to it. And so it's a great lesson in do you love something? Do you love this piece of music? Do you love this movie? Do you love this book? And there's unanswered questions. Go ask someone about them because odds are good if somebody's passionate about the project they want to tell you like more than you even bargained for getting from them
1: thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie Bilatowski and T. blumberg you can find natalie on threads at positively natalie and me at doctor of the dead our movies this episode were night of the comet 1984 that's time! Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.
0: The citizens of Earth would get an extra Christmas present this year.